If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, we will continue our study in the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. Prior to this, the Lord Jesus has begun his private ministry with the disciples. He begins teaching them on a number of subjects. And prior to this passage, he had a lesson for them to learn on the subject of faith, on the subject of having great faith, which is expressed by a dependence upon God because the object of our faith is God and the greatness of our faith is going to be dependent upon the object of our faith. He desired them to know what it is to have great faith. Here today in this passage in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, we begin a lesson that they needed to learn on the subject of humility, on the subject of humility. Verse 30, it reads, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Father, for your word, which gives us a light into our path. We pray, Father, that it might shine brightly upon our own proud hearts, that, Father, we might understand and know how great you are and how much we need you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Our culture exalts pride. In fact, some don't consider pride a sin at all. Pride a sin? Said the rap singer Queen Latifah. I wasn't aware of that. Or Christy Alley agreed, I don't think pride is a sin, and I think some idiot made that up. Who made all these up? Ice-T said, quote, pride is mandatory. 
That's one of the problems of the inner city. Kids don't have enough pride. I got into a gang because of pride, unquote. U.S. News and World Report summed it up, saying, quote, instead of the language of moderation and self-control, everybody seems to speak the therapized language of feelings and self-esteem. Quote, pride isn't a sin. You're supposed to feel good about yourself, unquote. You know, pride in the biblical times wasn't much different. Aristotle, one of the most influential and most influential philosophers of that day described pride as the crown of virtues, as the crown of virtues. The Romans looked at pride also as a virtue. Pride was very, very evident in the religious leaders of the day. They looked down upon sinners and their self-righteousness. They made themselves look more godly by their own long prayers, by the lengthening of their tassels, by looking as if they are fasting when they did. They gave publicly so that others would see how much they gave. They thanked God in their prayers that they were not like the sinner in the publican of the prayer in the temple. They were people who prided themselves and they sought the chief seats and banquets. They were the ones who loved the accolades of others. They were puffed up. They were stuck up. The Bible has plenty to say about the subject of pride and that it is not a virtue. Pride was the very first sin. It was the very first sin in the heart of Satan. Ezekiel 28:17 tells us, God says, your heart was proud because of your beauty, says of Satan. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. And Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. A person's pride will humble him. Proverbs 29, 23 tells us. And Proverbs 16, 5 says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Humility, on the other hand, is the opposite of pride, and it is exalted. Isaiah 66, 2 tells us, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Or Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God? And James 4, 6, which is very, very clear, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Andrew Murray, who was born in South Africa in 1828, whose parents were missionaries of the Dutch Reformed Church, in his book entitled Humility, he writes, quote, Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every evil and sin, or sin and evil, unquote. In the coming days, the Lord Jesus, as I mentioned, will teach his disciples in a private ministry in this last period of time. 
Jesus is only six months out. He's only six months out until his death and resurrection on the cross. Two and a half years at least have passed, and he has a number of lessons that he is going to be teaching his disciples in their private ministry. That is why it says there that he was teaching his disciples. He went around. He didn't want them to know, anyone to know about where they were going because he didn't want the throngs of crowd who were coming. He wanted to teach his disciples in the coming days lessons on faith, lessons on humility, a lesson on divorce and remarriage, a lesson on conquering sin, a lesson on how people enter the kingdom of God, a lesson on being the servant of all and many other things that he is going to teach them. Those are the things that we will learn in his classroom of private discipleship that he has for his disciples now at this time. And in the event today, he wants to teach them about humility because this was an incessant struggle for them. This was an incessant struggle for them. They had selfish ambition in whom is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And this is not the only time we're going to see this. We'll see this later on in the book of Mark again, when they will be debating, arguing among themselves as to who is the greatest in the kingdom. And I'm sure even though it was mentioned two or three times in the text of the Gospels, I'm sure that it was an ongoing discussion with the disciples. Jesus, though, in stark contrast to the argument of the disciples of who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, displays his humility through his submission in suffering and in death. And that is where we begin in the example of Jesus in verse 30 to 32. They went out and they began to go through Galilee. He didn't want anybody to know. It says in verse 30. In verse 31, he began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. They were en route to Jerusalem, meandering about in ways in which they would be able to cover a certain area in Galilee and the private ministry. And Jesus here is sharing with them about his humiliation about his suffering, about his torture, about his death, and about his resurrection. He will be killed and he will rise again in three days. Jesus here submitted himself, submitted himself in this act of humility. This is what the Apostle Paul brings out in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And he becomes a model for us in his submission. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes in verses 5 through 8 these words. Have this attitude, he tells the Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here this picture is Jesus. Jesus, the God who created the universe. He was involved in the creation of the universe. We see that in Colossians chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. All-knowing, omnipresent, confining himself to the limitations, to the restrictions, to the weaknesses of a human body. God who condescended in the incarnation and was born into this world to live in this restrictive, 
tent of a body, to suffer the rejection by people, to be abused, to be tortured unjustly, and to die on the cross for you and for me so that we might come to salvation. You know, I have such an admiration for missionaries who leave to go to the unreached parts of the world, the difficult parts, the difficult parts where they leave all of the creature comforts that are here, all of the things that they leave for the sake of the gospel, and they subject themselves to the hardships, the diseases, the life that is so very difficult in other parts of the world. I remember wanting to visit one of the largest slums in the world, visiting one of the largest slums in the world because I'd heard about a missionary family who had gone there and they'd brought their kids because they wanted to be among the people, to be among those people, to live among them. And they brought their family, their little children. And of course, because they weren't used to the living conditions that were there, there was constant sickness among their family, constant illness among their children, constant difficulties because of a lack of not only sanitation, but of many of the creature comforts that they were used to. But it is those people who go out and who reach people. And I admire many missionaries around the world who leave to share the gospel. God has different ministries for various people. But to sacrifice the things that are here, because in God's view and in their view, it's really not a sacrifice for all that Christ has done for us. But this is the idea that Christ came and he is suffering and he's going to die. It was such an assault upon the paradigm of the disciples. Because to them, a Messiah who would die would be no Messiah at all. This didn't even fit within the storyline or the permutations that they could ever imagine. And Jesus said, even though he said, I will rise in three days, it's not like they haven't seen uh, people rise from the dead before Jesus raised them. But I can imagine them thinking, well, if Jesus is going to die, who's going to raise Jesus from the dead? Because he's the only one that raises people from the dead. How does this all fit? And they didn't understand, the text tells them. How does this all fit? And they were afraid to ask him. But this was a picture of Jesus and his humility in condescending in the willingness to suffer at the hands of sinful, unjust people, to die for people who didn't even accept him, didn't even receive him, to come down to earth to a world in which people in their hearts had their fists raised in defiance to God. In his grace and because of his great love, he came and he was willing to do all of these things. In his humility, he displays this. And it is in stark contrast to his disciples here. We see that in verse 33 to 41 in which they are self-centered. You think about their insensitivity as Jesus is talking about his death, his last days. They came to Capernaum and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent for they were discussing with one another which of them was the greatest. I mean, and their, their own conviction, their own heart's conviction, I believe, caused them just to, I'm not going to say anything. And Luke 9.46 tells us, 
It wasn't just that they were discussing. In Luke 9, 46, it tells us they were arguing. They were arguing about their status. They're arguing about their status. This was the real problem. This was the real problem. You can imagine. This is the first group, the very first group of preachers, the very first group of church leaders, the very first group of people who would believe in Jesus, and they were not even getting along. And they were jockeying for position, and it surmounted into an argument, a division within their own ranks at the very inception of this group. You know, if all the problems that would face the church, it would not be the attacks from without. It wouldn't be the persecution. Persecution throughout church history, we've seen the effect of persecution upon God's church has always had a purifying effect upon the church, has always had a purifying effect upon the church because it weeds out those who are not willing to give their lives for the sake of Christ and those who are faithful, those who desire, they will continue to faithfully, faithfully follow Christ. And we've seen that in the early church after the scattering of Peter's, I mean, uh, of Stephen's stoning in the book of Acts. We've seen that happen in the former Soviet Republic, the Eastern European countries. Uh, we see that happen in China where there are, where God sustains genuine believers and persecution keeps the church pure. But the threat we see here, and that is persecution, that is from outside, but the threat we see here in this fledgling group comes from the inside comes from the inside, their own sinful desires of pride. And pride brings about disunity, disunity. John MacArthur writes, quote, The danger revealed here is that pride ruins unity by destroying relationships. Relationships are based on loving sacrifice and service on selfless deferring to and giving to others. Pride, being self-focused, is indifferent to others. Beyond that, it is ultimately judgmental and critical and therefore divisive. Because of that, pride is the most common destroyer, both of relationships and churches. It plagued the Corinthian church, causing Paul to ask, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men, unquote, unquote? Here they were, jockeying for power, jockeying for position, jockeying for influence, jockeying for more prominence in the kingdom. And this was a terrible blight at the insensitivity to Jesus who had just been talking about the fact that he's going to be suffered, he's going to torture, he's going to face shame, he's going to face all of these things, and he's going to die. You know, they're talking about the greatest in the kingdom. I wanted to take this position. I, I think I, I did more for this, etc. The threat, the threat to this fledgling church. And inherently, pride comes into play when they began to compare themselves with others. When they began to compare themselves with others, they began to think more highly of themselves than they ought in their comparisons with other people. And that was the problem in the Corinthian church as well. That was the problem in the Corinthian church. And that's why Paul addressed the church. Paul addressed the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He, he begins because he knows that there is division in the church. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He knows some people, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus Christ, you know. And they had all sorts of division. 
They had various gifts in the body, some more prominent, some more outspoken, some more background gifts. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason, any less a part of the body. And Paul's point in telling the Corinthian church this is that whether your ear, your foot, your eye, whatever part of the body you are, you are important, you are unique, you have your place in the body of Christ. And no one is any more valuable than any other part. Everyone is important. Everyone is essential. Everyone is a part of the body where pride says, no, I am more important. I'm the I. You're just an ear. I'm more deserving. I'm more entitled. I am whatever, blank. Once that happens, then self-centered pride comes into play, and it affects the body with disunity. Now, I'm not saying that there's supposed to be unity when there's false teaching. I'm not saying there's supposed to be unity even when there's sin, even when the church discipline issues. That's not what I'm talking about here. But there should be a genuine brokenheartedness when there is sin because it brings about the disunity because of pride. And that's why marriages break up. That's why there are unresolved conflicts, tensions, unresolved friction between friends. Because pride says, you know what? You're not going to do that to me. No, I'm not going to forgive them for that. I'm not going to. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Self-centered pride is where these disciples had been arguing among themselves in this fledgling group because they were focused upon them. But humility is the path to greatness, verse 35. So what Jesus does, he sits down. And he calls to the disciples, verse 35, he says to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. And what does he do? He takes a child. He takes a child. And this child becomes an illustration of what he wants them to recognize. Now, this child was a young child. It wasn't some teenager. It was a child. It was some infant. It wasn't some infant because Luke 9.47 tells us that this child could stand. This child was standing there. But it was young enough such that Jesus could take this child into his arms. Okay? Maybe this child was a year and a half or two years old. I don't know. But why a child? Why does he take a child? Because children had no achievements, they had no resume, there were no letters after their name, they have no life experience, there's no awards for them, there are no accomplishments, they don't contribute much to anything, to conversations other than being talked about because they're kids. They often interrupt. Lord chose a child to illustrate humility because children in biblical times were considered the lowliest in society. Daryl Bach writes in his commentary, in Judaism, children under 12 could not be taught the Torah, which was the books of Moses, five first five books of the Bible. And so to spend time, he writes, with them was considered a waste. Furthermore, children, especially who were young, many of them didn't live long. Many of them died earlier. And so the Jews looked upon a child as a 
not a good investment of your time. And Jesus takes a child as a living illustration, and he's going to use this living illustration that says, if you're even going to come into the kingdom, you've got to come just like this child. No achievements, no resume, no letters after your name, no claim to your life experience, no awards, no claim to your heritage. Nothing will ever merit you into the kingdom. You don't contribute anything to your salvation. What do you do? Maybe you interrupt a lot. You enter the kingdom in humility, in complete dependence, just like this two-year-old. Complete dependence. And in Mark chapter 10, we'll come across this incident. We'll come across this incident in which there's a rich young ruler. There's a rich young ruler. You know, Jesus will say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because of pride, the temptation of pride. I mean, here he's using this child as an illustration. You must come as a humble little child, completely dependent, having no resources of your own. He's going to come in Mark chapter 10, and the next chapter over, he's going to have this rich young ruler who's going to say, what must I do to get in the kingdom? And Jesus says, you must, you know, surrender all, you know, basically. And he turned away. He got too much pride. He had too many dollar signs behind his own life that he thought would be able to contribute to his own salvation. Inherently, there is temptation when we have those types of blessings. Inherently, there's temptation to pride when we have more and more and more education, when we're more and more gifted, when we have more and more money, when we have more money. There's that temptation to pride. This is what Moses warned the Israelites about. When the Israelites were standing, you know, on the bank, the second generation was standing along the banks of the Jordan. And Moses has this talk in Deuteronomy to the second generation. And he warns, he warns this second generation who is about to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 8, 11. He says, beware that you do not forget. And he's telling these young'uns that are there, the Lord God. Do not forget the Lord God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, when you've built good homes, you've lived in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become what? Proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, unquote. Isn't that the same temptation and warning, not only for the Israelites, but for us? It's the same warning for all of us. If our life goal is the same, let's build a nice house, have a great, multiply our flocks, multiply our investments, have a cushy, cushy life. Hey, take ease. Eat and be satisfied, which in and of themselves, nothing is wrong. Many of those things are wise things, but they can be a temptation. They can be a temptation for us to forget the Lord our God from which he has taken us. I like to remind collegiates that you remember the day when your paycheck was only two digits big and maybe three digits big. Remember the simplicity sometimes of those days? What happened 
and the nation of Israel, God gave them. God gave them a victory in the promised land, that land that was flowing with milk and honey. He gave them all of those blessings, and he gave them victory, and they built their paddled homes, as Malachi would say. Malachi would say, you built your paneled homes. What have you done? You've neglected the house of God. They became proud in their minds, and they walked away from God, and God brought about them judgment. Because sometimes in our lives, the blessings of God become a temptation that brings about our pride. What do we focus on in our lives? What is the focus that we aim our, our, our families towards? Is the focus of our life and our families to, here's how to become financially independent so that you can, and again, in and of itself, it's, it may not be a bad thing. But it's the focus of our life that, such that it becomes a great liability in the minds and hearts that this is what life is all about? No. We are to invest our time, our lives, our resources in the things that will matter for eternity. And Jesus says to them, as he takes this child, if anybody wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You want to... Get in the kingdom, because first, that word there is not a, it's not a relative ranking. Oh, there's the most humble person, and they made first place in the kingdom of heaven. No, this is an absolute term. And everyone, anyone who gets into the kingdom has a place, greatest, first. They're all, it's an absolute term as opposed to a relative comparative term. All who enter the kingdom, who are humble in heart and lowly in spirit, they realize they're undeserving of the grace of God, come in humility, and they earn a first place. So instead of garnering more and more for ourselves, what does our life aim towards? Servant of all? Last of all? Do we see ourselves as lowly? Well, these disciples, they really struggled with that. They struggled with that, and it was manifested in their exclusivity. Their exclusivity, verse 38, because pride promotes exclusivity. John is scratching his head. He says, oh, teacher, we saw somebody. He was casting out demons in your name, and we told him, hey, you stop. You stop. You stop that, because you're not following us. Jesus says, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and soon be able to speak afterwards evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Now, we don't know who this person was, but Jesus knew who this person was. And he wiped away the thought from their minds that this person wasn't a genuine follower. He wiped out of their minds and he said, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Don't prevent him from continuing his work. I mean, when they were seeing this person doing the work that they had been empowered to do. I mean, they, they had had this idea that, wow, we're the privileged ones. Back in the earlier chapters of Mark, they were given the power to cast out demons. They were commissioned to preach the word. They were given the power to heal and do various things. And, oh, I can imagine how they must have felt. We are the twelve. Pride. They're not rejoicing in the success of others. They weren't happy when somebody else was doing what they were doing and experiencing God's power. No, they had their groupie mentality. They had their us 12, no more, shut the door. 
That was their motto. They had their little clique. They had their little group. And in those days, you might pride yourself by the rabbi that you followed. Oh, we're disciples of Jesus. We're of Jesus. We're not of Gamaliel. He's kind of off the way. No, we're, we're with this teacher. They had their celebrity status in which they thought maybe this is, this is it. And if you weren't a part of us groupies, well, you better stop what you're doing. Jesus, of course, was the biggest name in all of the land. He drew tens of thousands of people, and here was his inner circle. And so you can imagine their mindset. Why did they tell this man to stop? You're not one of us. Pride promotes exclusivity. But even Paul rails against this. When Paul was imprisoned in the book of Philippians, when Paul was imprisoned in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, there were people who were preaching Christ, and their motives were not right. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, this is what he says about them. Philippians 1, 15, he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter, meaning those who are preaching out of goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, i.e. those who are preaching from envy and strife, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So some were preaching out of envy, strife. They were thumbing their nose. "Mm, Paul, you're imprisoned. You can't do much, but look at us. Look at how much we can do. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. His focus was on the fact that Christ was being preached, that the truth was being preached. He knew that their motives was wrong, but he rejoiced in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. He wasn't exclusive, saying, you know what? It's only us, only us who are designated as apostles, only us who are, who are those who have been commissioned by Christ specifically to preach the gospel. No. The question for us is, do we have joy when others succeed in the name of Jesus Do we have joy when good things happen? No matter whether or not we have had a hand in it, no matter or not whether or not it is something we knew about or didn't know about or whatever it might be, should we be joyful? Of course we ought to be. We ought to be joyful when God's kingdom grows and the truth, when ministry continues on. This can be a very difficult thing for some who are involved with various ministries that are parachurch ministries or even Sunday school teachers or whatever it might be. When somebody's ministry grows and yours does not, or when someone's albums sell and yours don't, or when that group or that church grows in the truth of the Word of God, Do we have great joy because the kingdom over all is blessed? Because the kingdom over all is what God cares for? Or do we have an exclusivity in our own pride and we cannot take joy because it's not about us? As sinful people, pride is always, always haranguing at our doorstep. And we may think of pride as 
someone who's outwardly bragging. I mean, a lot of times that's our picture. Somebody who's boastful, talks about themselves, who always wants to tell you about how much they've done or whatever it might be. We think of all that time, that manifestation of pride is so blatant, but oftentimes it is not. Stuart Scott, in his book, From Pride to Humility, names a number of ways in which we manifest our pride in practical terms. Here's 14 of them. We manifest our pride sometimes by complaining against or passing judgment on God. Numbers 14, 1 to 4, 9 to 11, Romans 9, 20. A proud person in a difficult situation, he writes, thinks, look what God has done to me after all I have done for him. In other words, something bad happens to this person and they think God owes them. God owes them a, a good life, an easy life, a comfortable life, or whatever the Bible has not promised them, they've claimed to. Look at all I've done for God. Blaming God, passing judgment on God. Secondly, a person who manifests their pride often has a lack of gratitude in general. Scott writes, Proud people usually think they deserve what is good. The result here is they see no reason to be thankful for what they receive. As a matter of fact, they may even complain because they think they deserve better. They tend to be critical, complaining, and discontent. The proud person is not in practice of being thankful toward God or others. 2 Chronicles 32.25. Thirdly, he cites anger. A proud person is often an angry person. One's anger can include outbursts of anger, withdrawing, pouting, or frustration. A proud person often becomes angry because his quote-unquote rights or expectations are not met. Matthew 21-16. Someone doesn't get their way, they get mad. When others don't meet their expectations, they get mad. Fourthly, perfectionism. Some people who strive to be perfect often do so for recognition. They may do so so they can feel good about themselves. Whatever the reason, this behavior is very self-serving and proud. The basic problem is making things that are less important more important. Matthew 23, 24 to 28. In other words, when others don't measure up to our perfect standards, become very critical. Fifthly, talking too much. Talking too much. Proud people who talk too much often do it because they think what they have to say is more important than what someone else has to say. And when there are many words, sin is generally unavoidable. Proverbs 10:19. Sixthly, being devastated or angered by criticism. Being devastated or angered by criticism. Proud people usually struggle a great deal with criticism. Such people cannot bear that they are not perfect or have weaknesses because they cannot accept who they really are. Proverbs 13.1. Frustration happens because, you see, they're not able to accept their own limitations, might be able to shell it out, but not take it. Seventh, being sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading. Being sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading. Proud people can be very unkind people. Those who belittle other people usually want to raise themselves up above others. Very often this is quite cleverly done through jesting. They may excuse themselves by saying, quote, that's just the way I am. That's my personality. Proverbs 12, 18, 23. Eighthly, our pride is manifested in a lack of service. Proud people may not serve because they are not thinking of others. 
or because they want to be coaxed to serve or don't want to continue if there is no praise. Needing recognition is a sure sign of the wrong motive in service. Galatians 5.13, Ephesians 2.10. Ninth, being defensive or blame-shifting. You would often hear a proud person say, he writes, quote, are you saying it's my fault? Or, well, what about you? Genesis 3.12-13, Proverbs 12.1. When pride led Adam to sin in the Garden of Eden, not only did he blame Eve, he blamed God. And when God spoke with Eve, she turned and blamed the servant, being defensive or blame-shifting. Tenth, resisting authority or being disrespectful. A proud person may detest being told what to do. We might say he or she has a submission problem. What they actually have, however, is a pride problem. It is simply displaying itself in a lack of submission. 1 Peter 2, 13, 17. Eleventh. Voicing preferences and opinions when not asked. A proud person might not be able to keep his preferences or opinions to himself. He will offer it when it is not asked for. These preferences are usually voiced without consideration for others. Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Twelve, being impatient or irritable with others. A proud person might be angry with other people because they are concerned that it is their own schedule or plans being ruined. These are often inflexible on preference issues, Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Proud people are very hard to work with on the mission field because of the need to be patient and flexible in so many circumstances. 13, minimizing our own sin and shortcomings. Minimizing our own sin and shortcomings. A proud person typically believes that they, their own sin is no big deal. They think they have little sin and others have a great deal of it. Matthew 7, 3-5, they can't see the log that is in their own eye. Why? Because, number 14, they maximize the sins of others and their shortcomings. To the proud person, other people are the problem. They magnify, bring attention to the sin of others by gossiping about others' sins. Matthew 7, 3-5, Luke 18, 9-14. They easily see the speck, the brother's eye, that is the primary focus. And proud people are thinking, Everyone else, everyone else, hmm, in this list, I can think, that person is like this, that person is like this, and not humble enough to spend time honestly examining their own heart. The question is, how humble or proud are you? He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord desires of you, but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are all people who struggle with pride. Every time, O oh God, we sin, we raise our own hearts in pride. We pray, God, for your help. Help us to see the wonderful example our Savior made for us, that he humbled himself, willing to die for sinners like us. Help us, Father, to be humble in our own eyes, that we might see how we truly are before your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.